Hello everyone, I'm Ron Waxman. This is the CRT Online. We are on the COVID-19 series. And it's my pleasure and honor to uh, introduce to you our guest today, uh, Captain Daniel Cherto from NIH. Um, welcome, Daniel. Thank you, nice to be here. And you have been working on the front line, uh, understanding the virus and therapies to the virus. And we've been curious, we've been dealing with that for over almost four months, and you probably have dealt with that from the beginning. So maybe you can share with us, where was the first time that you were introduced to the threat and starting to think uh, how this virus is going to be exhibited in the real world? So Ron, I started uh, thinking about this pretty, uh, you know, uh, pretty early on, I guess, relative to the United States experience with the virus. If you look at the epi curves in the U.S., um, cases really started to pick up in March of 2020. But, you know, the initial report that there was a cluster of pneumonia cases uh, in China came to the WHO in December. And pretty early on after that report, I was paying fairly close attention to what was happening uh, you know, within China, but then also regionally, uh, because some of the characteristics of the virus that were reported, you know, really within a couple week period of the first reports that went to the World Health Organization were quite concerning that we might have a novel virus on our hands that would result in sustained human to human transmission. Uh, and in that setting, you know, with when you have a virus that has sustained human to human transmission, you know, similar to, to influenza viruses, uh, you know, the, the ability for, you know, some certain public health measures to control those viruses are somewhat limited. So as soon as we understood some of those features, I had concerns about not just regional spread, but global spread. Uh, and then certainly, as we, we know by, you know, uh, you know, by March, there was sustained transmission in the United States, and we've had uh, continuous transmission in, in this country since then. Yeah, I remember we had our CRT meeting in February and one of the Italian physicians that was attending the meeting came to me and she said, we cannot do the live case tomorrow from Milan because we already closed the hospital to any electives. We're just dealing with COVID-19 and that was February 24th. Um, and I think uh, we had the meeting at the Gaylord in the 20. Six, there was already one individual that came to um, the meeting. They're not our meeting, and he was a, basically positive for the COVID-19. But my question is, obviously, we didn't know, nobody knew much about the virus in the beginning. When was the first time that you felt that this is not going to be a regular, I mean, it is a novel virus, as you mentioned, and that, that's going to cause us a, such a pandemic and, and higher mortality and everything that we've been seeing after that? So, 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 Ron, there are two things that were concerning uh, that, that I think that some of the features of this virus, you know, were beginning to show their, their, show their face early on. And those features are that it's highly transmissible. And part of that, which was hinted at at the beginning, but we have now a lot firmer evidence uh, with existing data, is, is that, that, that part of that transmissibility relates to uh, shedding during the early phases in either mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic individuals, which is quite problematic as it relates to the ability to identify and then control spread from those individuals. So, so highly transmissible was one feature that was concerning. But then in the grand scheme of things, relatively high lethality. So we do these comparisons about 
you know, uh, case fatality rates relative to other, you know, known respiratory viruses, both the endemic ones, but also the emerging uh, viruses. Uh, and early on, it was apparent that the, the lethality of the virus was relatively high, you know, even compared to sort of some of our seasonal viruses like influenza. And so that combination between highly transmissible and relatively high case fatality you know, were early warning signs. And again, as I point out, you know, while the data that came out of China, you know, was referent to that country and there, you know, perhaps, you know, is doesn't tell us what was going to happen in this country. There were early indications that the virus was highly, highly transmissible and, and relatively highly lethal. And th that's a bad combination. <laughs> Have we seen any other cytokine storms with other SARS viruses uh, that are not that kind of, was that something that was totally new or it was seen before with other so you, you raise an important point, which is, you know, the broader question is, what are the contributors to uh, lethality or pathogenesis uh, due to SARS-CoV-2? Um, and that is an area that, you know, um, you know my, my lab at NIH is uh, focused on pathogenesis of emerging pathogens. So we were quite focused on Ebola, the same questions around host pathogen interactions with Ebola before SARS-CoV-2 came and then when SARS-CoV-2 came you know, obviously we shifted gears like so many so many others and and I guess the beautiful thing about you know, if there's one positive thing about this virus is that investigators that you know had all different focuses are now you know really drilling down and so there's not one or two experts there's a lot of experts on this virus as, as you know we pointed out in our prior discussions but but the key question is is still, you know, what are the viral and host contributions to pathogenesis that are resulting in organ dysfunction and failure? And there's no doubt that there are contributions by both. Uh, you know, there are some very nice studies that, you know, show, uh, you know, the distribution of virus and in, in, in pneumocytes, you know, direct, causing direct viral-induced cytopathology. You know, that that's obviously, uh, uh, you know, contributes to, to lung injury. But as you point out, we also have now, you know, both convincing evidence, not just from the clinical phenotype, but also from, you know, a number of observational studies and then the uh, therapeutic intervention trials that are beginning to focus on, you know, the host uh, contribution to immunopathogenesis. And so, you know, one term that has been used to describe that is the sort of cytokine storm. Uh, and, and absolutely, we think that a hyperinflammatory response that is contributing to pathogenesis that perhaps is deeply intertwined with, you know, what I sort of describe as disordered coagulation that is contributing to micro and macro thromboses in the lungs, but also in other organs that have been defined in uh, fatal cases of COVID-19. I think, uh, so I think your question relates to, you know, has this been observed in, in, in the in the other um, SARS you know, yeah, human coronaviruses, and that's SARS-1 and that's MERS. Um, and, you know, I think the short answer to that is, yes, there are hints uh, that, that those features were there, but they were, they, they have not, they have not garnered the same level of attention that SARS-CoV-2 has garnered because it has resulted in the pandemic that it, ha that it has and has engaged so much attention in so many researchers. There's no doubt, I mean, a similar phenomenon, again, I, I, I lean on Ebola a lot because I've thought a lot about Ebola, but a similar phenotype happens in Ebola. And, 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 and it makes sense that these things are not due just to the pathogen alone, 
but not but but to the host response to the pathogen, which has major implications for what it is that we need to target in order to you know reduce the severity of organ injury, organ damage, organ failure, and ultimately death. Right? Like if we focus just on the pathogen, and there's a whole piece that we're going to be missing it at least in the most severe cases. So that's leads me to the question of uh, the pathogen. Is it only one pathogen or pathogen with mutations? Uh, and I'm glad you brought the Ebola because uh, you're one of the experts, world experts on that with your research. Um, were there a lot of asymptomatic patients who had the Ebola or everyone who had the Ebola had basically clinical manifestation? Because here we see a disease that most of the patients that are asymptomatic or very mildly symptomatic, and yes, they still have the virus. Uh, and so, so it brings it, A, was that seen in the Ebola? B, are we dealing exactly with the same pathogen? Uh, I know that you can say everybody has different ways that he reacted, and we have all those uh, co-founders that can lead to disease, but still it's like too much uh, hard to believe. I mean, we have a lot of heavy people, hypertension people, that actually takes it very easy. And then, so are we dealing with a one pathogen or multiple sub-sub pathogens? Ron, these are, these are great questions and I'm gonna take them one at a time. So the first was, your first question related to, you know, mm -hmm. the prevalence of asymptomatic or mildly symptomatic folks with Ebola. Um, the short answer to that is we still believe that the majority of individuals that develop Ebola develop, you know, a severe, severe illness, that the fraction of the population that has mild or asymptomatic illness is a relatively small fraction. We do know that those, those cases occur, and that was one of the things that became more evident, first with the large outbreak of Ebola in West Africa during 2013 to 16, but then also with the more recent outbreak that has been sort of fizzling in the, the Democratic uh, Republic of the Congo. So there are mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic cases of Ebola that are, that are fairly well defined, but, uh, but the, the predominance of them we still believe. Now those, those issues have been debated and you have to understand they're debated because they're debated around these issues of the seroprevalence studies. And the challenge is when you do these seroprevalence studies is false positives. So the specificity of the assay, and it ha that has to do with both the assay and then inadequate controls uh, in which those studies are reported. So there's a lot of debate in the literature about, oh, maybe we, you know, we did a population and 20% of them had antibodies, but they never, well, maybe, but you know, that has to do with, that more likely than not has to do with the specificity of those, those serologic assays. Um, which is different than um, which is different than COVID nineteen. So we we do know that the majority of people that are infected, you know, that eighty percent or perhaps more. I mean, it, we're we're learning. I mean, that number was a number that was quoted from the China series that about eighty percent had sort of mild illness, um, and that you know maybe a fraction of those had you know or a smaller fraction had asymptomatic illness or not. Those numbers, that denominator of mild or asymptomatic illness, I suspect is larger than 80%. I suspect it's larger, and we're still working that out. We don't know the answer definitively because again, we still need to do those, we need to have a sensitive and specific serologic assay. Um, and then we need to do those large seroprevalence studies that tell us about what population uh, is mild or asymptomatic that, that, that truly has, you know, has had COVID-19. Your second question related to, is this one virus or is it multiple viruses? And the short answer to that question is, the jury is still out. The jury is still out. You know, um, 
there are you know some data that are that are suggesting that you know this is an RNA virus uses an RNA dependent polymerase, which is error prone. When the virus replicates itself, uh, because of that that polymerase has a certain error rate that's inherent to it, and so there can be stochastic changes in the virus every time it goes through you know replication. And are one of those changes actually going to result in a an insertion, a deletion, or a point mutation that result in uh, a different property of the virus that's relevant for us, i.e. transmissibility. It probably can't get much better at being transmissible. It's pretty good at that. Um, or uh, pathogen pathogenicity, uh, tissue tropism, those types of things. Um, you know, those are the types of questions that investigators are asking right now, but there are no definitive uh, data right now that suggests that we have, you know, uh, different strains of the virus that are acting significantly different. I will tell you that, you know, as, as other, you know, severe viral infections, one of the logical questions is um, not just are there new viruses popping up in the population and what are the implications for diagnostics, because we use molecular diagnostics uh, and or um, pathogenesis or therapy for those viruses, but similar questions that relate to, which we're looking at, you know, uh, we haven't talked about, you know, what some of the, our focus, but, you know, one of the questions that we're looking at is uh, intra-host evolution. So in other words, in a single individual over time, does the virus actually change due to host pressures or perhaps pressures that are opposed by therapies? You know, one of the, the new, new drugs that has, you know, through the New England Journal, uh, the ACT-1 trial, uh, remdesivir, has shown to have some benefit. And so, you know, that is an antiviral drug that targets the viral. And so virus, and so does that put pressure on the virus to change in a way that you actually have mutations over time within the same host? Those types of things have been observed for certain in patients with influenza, uh, where they'll start with one, one virus, the virus exists in a quasi-species, and then by the end, a different uh, species of the virus sort of predominated at the end of the illness course. Do we have the ability to engineer the virus? I mean, we, we we heard that the Chinese had it at some point uh, to be able to know exactly the sequence of the RNA. I mean, make sure that we can ex exactly know. So then you can test take different viruses from different places in the world and see, are we dealing with the same or there is some changes in the chain? Yeah, uh, so, so those types of studies um, can and you know are being done in the laboratory. We're, we're not working on that on those specific studies, but you know the design of that experiment that you just described, um, you know, really is our comparative pathogenesis studies. And so you take a virus, either a naturally occurring virus, virus, different uh, different species or, or flavors of that virus, and then you test them in vitro and or you know small animal models to ask relevant questions as relates to some of the things that we talked about before, transmission, pathogenicity tissue tropism. So those types of questions can be, um, you can get insight into those questions by using in vitro and in vivo uh, preclinical models, but there are still limitations. And then your question about can you, can you alter the virus? Yes, we have molecular tools that allow for, you know, reverse engineering of the viruses where, you know, you can, you know, even if it's not a wild type or a naturally occurring virus, you can you know, make changes to ask targeted questions about you know, whether one particular amino acid change 
would result in a, a change in the receptor binding domain of the virus and therefore, uh, you know, infect a, a separate set of cells or be more or less permissible in certain cells. So, so those types of questions can be addressed and will be addressed certainly as things move forward. Yeah, and then uh, maybe we move to a little bit about the therapies and vaccinations. So from the therapies, uh, you mentioned remdesivir, there was a lot of controversy on uh, hydroxychloroquine and uh, steroids, maybe less uh, controversial. But one of the issues is when do you test the patient? When do you administer the drug? How long do you administer the drug? Drug combination, severity of the disease. I mean, there is so much heterogeneity here between the patients, whether they're at the end of the cytokine storm, the beginning, before, how do you actually navigate right now as an agency? Uh, you sponsor yourself several trials, you were uh, supported some of the trials and most of the data come to you at the end and you synthesize those data. I mean, how do you have the tools to really distinguish between those therapies and their efficacy? So I think you have to have a two-part strategy in the setting of a pandemic. One is you have to you know, come up with therapies that have some biological plausibility of how they might you know, benefit in the disease course. And then you have to you know, put your nickel down and say, you know, this is the design of the trial and we're gonna give it a shot you know, based upon these pre-existing evidence. So that's one thing. You see that happening at, a, at, a, at an unprecedented scale. You know, previously approved drugs that are already you know, on the market that are being repurposed that have immunomodulatory effects that are now being imp implemented in randomized trials, you know, many, many, many different trials. So that's not the typical pathway to look at effective you know, therapies for severe viral infections. The typical pathway is to have biological plausibility, to have some in vitro data that supports it, to take it into preclinical, re relevant and validated preclinical animal models, show some proof of principle there, and then bring it into the humans. But in what, in, in what we're doing, you know, uh, we've sort of reinvented the approach because of the, the urgency of the pandemic. So think, but, but your point is no less important. And in order to glean that information, I believe, and this is just my impression, is that you know, we need to do very, very careful studies among individuals that are getting these, these drugs. And this is sort of, you know, it's not unique, but it is sort of the design of our approach which I sort of refer to as these detailed natural history studies where you capture not just relevant clinical and physiologic data very carefully along the full time course of acute illness and into recovery, but you also have matched specimens with high fidelity collection, you know, daily collection from the relevant compartments that you can access and that's blood and then ideally the upper and lower respiratory tract. And you begin to query not just the clinical and physiologic but the molecular and immunologic responses to the host and how those change in the presence or absence of a drug. And I true, and that's, that's not easy. And it's still sort of seeking the needle in the haystack, but it has to be a systematic approach to sort of say, did we get the right dose? Did we get the right timing? You know, when, when, it, when it was administered, these are the changes in the relevant populations of cells that give us some insight, biological insight into you know, what the mechanism of action is in the host. And then theoretically, in an iterative fashion, over time, you get closer to, yeah, we have the right drug, but you know what, we have to adjust the timing or the dose or, you know, I'll give you an example, you know, um, 
antivirals, you know, um, an antiviral that is administered uh, late in the disease course is almost certainly going to have less of an impact on relevant clinical outcomes than something that's. And so when you do, when you, when you, in, when you intervene at day, you know, six or day seven of symptoms, accounting for a five-day incubation period, you know, probably in natural history, you know, due to your own innate adaptive, the virus is already on the retreat. So is that the right time to inter intervene with an antiviral? You know, these are sort of natural questions. So I, I want to actually talk about an antiviral. You're very familiar with remdesivir. I mean, you worked on that on the Ebola. Uh, but let's focus maybe on um, the COVID-19. So there was a very large study. It was announced. It was published in the New England. I think it was um, actually stopped prematurely. I mean, you maybe want to comment why was that? Because there was a question that did shows shorter duration of the time. Uh, but was there any other um, signal, let's say viral load, I mean, you would expect like the one that you were suggesting that says, well, this is not just a statistical look. Uh, there is some scientific basis. Here we see, we give that um, antiviral drug, we see reduction in viral load, we see some other biomarkers that shows uh, the, viral, the virus is less active rather than, okay, this has been shorter hospitalization by three days because there was no impact on mortality. So if you want to comment why the study was stopped prematurely and also was there any other signal beyond the three days to support the efficacy? Yeah. Um, so to your first question, uh, you know, I participated in the study to the degree that the NIH Clinical Center was one of many sites for international uh, trial design. So, um, you know, for better or for worse, I, you know, I did not sit on the decision-making board to ultimately sort of say when, 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 I think mostly for better, uh, when, when to start. <laughs> <laughs> when to start or, or when to stop. But I, but I was, I did participate in the care of patients that were in, in enrolled in that trial here at the NIH Clinical Center. Um, and I'm also, um, as, uh, as an associate investigator on that, the clinical study here at, at NIH, I'm also working on uh, trying to address some of the questions that you asked um, as it relates to, um, now that study's been unblinded, as it relates to in the remdesivir group versus the placebo group, do we have a signal for a change in viral load in the relevant compartments, the upper respiratory tract, the lower respiratory tract? Is there also then a signal for uh, altered uh, immune response? So in other words, if there's a lower viral burden, does that actually then uh, result in less of an inflammatory response and perhaps less of a disordered coagulation? And therefore, it's not just reducing the viral burden, but it's altering the host response. So those types of questions are ones that we're working on in a relatively small cohort of patients for the purpose of sort of proof of principle to get out to, you know, I would say to sort of argue for the, the research approach, which is to say, yes, it's very important to design these trials in a way that we get the answer, we get the clinical outcome. Does it make a difference in mortality or not? But it's also important, which gets to some of your questions, and I would argue equally important, that if there isn't an effect, why wasn't there an effect? Or if there was an effect, what were the biological mechanisms by which that effect had benefit? And even if, even if it doesn't change the clinical practice for, uh, for this pathogen, it informs our approach for the next pathogen. It, it informs 
you know, where do you begin to, how do you begin to think about these things? So it's me, this is me making an argument for really trying to better understand pathogenesis in a very detailed way by trying to closely co uh, collect, to connect, you know, the clinical course with the molecular and immunologic features of the disease. So, so did you find any, uh, or you're still working on it? You cannot disclose it right now. <laughs> still oh, working on that. Yeah. It, it's changing. I mean, you know, one, one thing, you know, I'll give you an example. You know, one thing that we are working on, and we're not the only ones. There's many, you know, individuals are, you know, barking down similar trees. But there, there's a concept, there's a hypothesis that I think is, is pretty well validated that, uh, that this concept of immunothrombosis. So the, this, the concept behind immunothrombosis is that uh, you have a pathogen. Your pathogen enters the body. It wants to get into places it's not supposed to be. And when that pathogen, for example, enters the lungs, uh, the body recognizes it in a way, and it triggers an innate immune response. And that innate immune response has a cellular component and a soluble mediator component. And the innate cells are neutrophils and mono, alveolar macrophages, as an example. And they release inflammatory mediators. Everybody talks about IL-6 and IL-1 beta and TNF-alpha, and, and those cause more of an inflammatory response. But one of the other things that both those cellular and the soluble uh, immune response that are doing that are in response to the pathogen, we know that they also contribute to disordered coagulation. So they contribute to clotting. And the purpose of that, theoretically, is that the body's trying to maintain homeostasis. By clotting, it's trying to trap the pathogen in its location, so it's regional, and then it prevents it from getting disseminated. Uh, and so if you end up with the disease, if you end up with the virus, and maybe you've seen some of these, some of these images, that actually very effectively spreads you know, in the lower respiratory tract and infects you know, type, type one, type two, pneumocytes in a widespread fashion. And those pneumocytes are in close opposition to al, you know, uh, alveolar capillaries, endothelium. Uh, and at that endothelial surface, you can imagine where there's then that, that trigger for immunothrombosis. And so we're, we're looking into you know, some of the mechanisms that are contributing. And the truth is some of the drugs right now um, that are being proposed, uh, paracetinib, there are some of these other drugs that are being tested are, are actually targeting those innate immune mediators. So monocytes, the release of uh, cytokines, neutrophils, the contribution of neutrophils, they produce what are called these nets, neutrophil extracellular traps. You know, uh, are we actually able to mitigate uh, net production that's thought to contribute to immunothrombosis? So back to your question, you know, for example, we have begun to look at levels of nets in uh, the serum of, uh, of a well-defined patient cohort, the ACT-1 cohort. Um, and we are going to you know, try to closely look to say, well, if you got remdesivir versus next, not getting remdesivir, is there a signal that perhaps less virus, less net formation, and then, and then looking at in vitro studies where perhaps you can add inhibitors of net formation to sort of say, okay, is there biological plausibility about why this drug may meaningfully affect some of the downstream components to pathogenesis? So we're, we're, we're working on, the, we're not the only ones. There's a number of people 
but it's not just choosing the drugs, it's understanding why they may or may not work. It's a fascinating research. Uh, I, I just said that so many people died and before we have the answer, but hopefully that will give us some clues uh, how to treat those patients in the future. I, I want to move a little bit to vaccination. I mean, we heard this week from Dr. Fauci that he's uh, optimistic about getting a vaccine um, that will work, maybe maybe more than one, and relatively in a short period of time. Can you share with us a little bit what insight uh, does he have that, uh, uh, you know, give us to be optimistic or give him to reason to be optimistic? Well, if Dr. Fauci's optimistic, I'm optimistic. <laughs> you know, obviously he's he's working from a, a much much more informed position uh, than I am. You know, what I will tell you is that one of the things that the World Health Organization has done, and it's available on their website, is they've tried to pull all of the information about various vaccine candidates into one place. And I've recently looked at that at that website. And if you review that website, what you'll see is that there's over a hundred candidates, uh, vaccine candidates that are in a quote unquote preclinical uh, preclinical stage of evaluation, meaning they're being looked at in vitro or perhaps they're being looked at in animal models. And then and maybe this has changed, but recently there were uh, 10 uh, vaccine candidates that were being evaluated in human trials. So as you know, Ron, they're, you know, phase one through three human trials. And the majority of those, those candidates were still being evaluated in early phase clinical trials, looking at uh, safety and immunogenicity. And then the one uh, vaccine candidate, which is uh, the Oxford vaccine candidate, which is based upon a chimp ad, chimpanzee adenovirus, a, 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 a reconstructed chimpan, chimpanzee adenovirus that expresses the surface glycoprotein for, uh, for SARS-CoV-2, that that vaccine candidate has moved into later phase 2B and three clinical trials in the UK. And so that's, that's out of the gate and, and into phase three human trials. And there's other promising candidates that are moving in that direction as well. So, you know, I, I don't have greater insight into, you know, how Dr. Fauci creates his timeline but it is encouraging that you know there are vaccines that are moving into late stage trials, and that, and as I understand it, although I don't have personal insight into this as well, you've you've heard it as well, uh, that a strategy is to um, manufacture these vaccines even before they've shown to be efficacious in a, a subset of these vaccines, even before they've been shown, so that if one is proven to be uh, efficacious and is in the process of FDA approval that will have a little bit of lead time on manufacturing to sort of help ultimately get this in, in, into people. Yeah, what we hear from all those manufacturers that it's not that hard to make it, it's just to go through the process of phase one, phase two, and phase three. And also they claim safety, which is assuring. But uh, I just wanna talk to you, maybe it's gonna be more philosophical um, topic about the vaccination because uh, we do have flu every year. We vaccinate ourselves every year and we have to do it every year and still despite the vaccination we see flu so from what you can see right now i mean are we married to this covid 19 for decades uh, despite vaccination or you can see any way that we can eradicate it like polio or other um, viruses that we don't see them anymore yeah i think that one can be optimistic that 
there will be a vaccine platform that will work for this virus. You know, I think that, you know, you've heard that from public health leaders, and I think that they're coming from a place of, you know, it's, it's a place of an informed optimism. Um, you know, uh, the, we're not going to know until we know, right? And it's going to take some time. It's going to take some time to get those answers. You know, the difference between the flu, the flu vaccine, which you know, is that the, the biology of that virus is different than the biology of the coronavirus. You know, the, the, the influenza virus, it is an RNA virus. Uh, it's a negative strand RNA virus versus coronavirus, which is a positive strand RNA virus. And flu also has a segmented genome. So there's eight different segments to the flu genome. And one of those segments codes for, two of those segments code for proteins that sit on the surface of, of the influenza virus, the hemagglutinin and the neuraminidase. And the hemagglutinin, as you know, um, that sits on the surface of that influenza virus from year to year undergoes a mild, what they call genetic drift. And it's that drift theoretically that is causing the need for a year to year vaccine. That same, you know, the same evidence that the surface glycoproteins are the surface proteins of the coronaviruses, that they undergo those sort of seasonal changes. That, you know, the biology is not there to support that. But having said that, just because that doesn't take place, or maybe, you know, maybe we're not aware of changes that take place yet, that doesn't mean that it's a slam dunk that we're going to have a vaccine. I mean, there are some examples like measles, as you know, where, you know, we hit it out of the park. You get two vaccines early in life and you've got 90 some percent protect protection for the rest of your existence with a couple of shots. And then there's other vaccines that we've been trying for, like, for example, respiratory syncytial virus, we've been trying for decades to get an effective vaccine. So it's not a slam dunk, but I think that there are, you know, there's optimism uh, that as, you know, a foundation for optimism that we can get it right uh, with, with this virus. Yeah, let's hope so. I mean, we really need something uh, effective and soon. So, so vaccine would be ready. I mean, let's, I'm going to ask you a personal question. Would be taking the vaccine if it's in the market tomorrow? Well, we haven't been For a young guy, you're probably less exposed to any risk. But if, if a vaccine candidate were available and it was a reasonable construct and it went through phase, you know, early, even if, you know, even if it was offered as an early phase study, would I, would I, uh, would I participate in that study? Yes, I would participate in that study. You know, uh, on a personal note, uh, as an example, you know, there is a, a, a vaccine for uh, Ebola uh, that was also tested in uh, at the end of the outbreak in West Africa and also in the Congo. And while that vaccine was being uh, being evaluated, it was offered to me in the setting of a clinical trial uh, as a healthcare provider, and I took that vaccine. Uh, and, and that's partially because I cared for patients with Ebola and I worked with Ebola in the laboratory. Um, but it's, <laughs> but, You're but you, know, good, yeah. you know, so, so, you know, I, if, if a vaccine became available, of course I would, I would, uh, I would, I would take it. I mean, there were times and I understand, you know, when vaccines, uh, when, when, when the, um, uh, research in the science of vaccines was perhaps not as rigorous it is, as it is today in the regulatory environment where you know, there have been some uh, historical examples of where we've gotten into trouble with vaccines. Um, but you know, I think we, were, you know, we, we take a pretty thoughtful and cautious approach um, in the current environment. 
Uh, that's um, good to know. I mean, give us some assurances, and, and I probably would do the same if the vaccine would be ready. Yes, I mean, we should take it. Um, we're just seeing maybe spike of viruses and infections uh, in some of the southern states, and some people worry that uh, is this is considered to be second wave, still first wave, kind of lingering of the or, or moving of the wave. How do you look at that? And, and is there what is your projection? Where are we heading? Are we heading to sort of towards of another waves like that, but goes to different places, or this is just another spike that we'll have to deal with? As my understanding, Ron, is we're still in the first wave. It's just parts of our country hadn't yet been affected by the first wave. Um, and we knew all along that those parts of the country weren't immune to it. It's just that it hadn't gotten there yet, right? Uh, and now it's there, uh, and it's impacting, you know, parts of the country uh, in a way that, you know, earlier on the Northeast was impacted, New York and, and New Jersey. You see what's going on in Texas and Florida and Arizona uh, and increases in many other states across the country. Um, and, and so, you know, they're, they're beginning to face the same kind of concerns and questions that this region of the country has faced earlier on, which is, you know, uh, enormous demands on our healthcare infrastructure, enormous demands on the inpatient hospital system, enormous demands uh, on the ICU setting, high, high morbidity, high mortality. Um, and they're beginning to express those concerns in, in some of these states that were not initially affected, but are being affected now. So I, I suspect that, you know, uh, behavioral patterns and social interventions uh, in those places are going to allow for a reversing of course and that things will settle down in the short term in those places. But we've seen over and again that if we let our guard down, uh, as long as there remains a large portion of the population that is susceptible, that, that, that we will remain at risk for increasing spikes. Um, and that's for certain. And, and I have, you know, and I'll go on on a limb a little bit, you know, there's been a lot of debate about um, about you know whether or not uh, there will be um, uh, uh, some seasonal pattern to this virus. I I I'm I'm of the mindset that in the setting of of a of a novel virus with a highly transmissible a large susceptible uh, population, that of course there will be ongoing transmission. But I'm also of the mindset that transmission of the virus is affected by environmental conditions. And that environmental conditions, just by the biology of the virus, it's, a, it's an enveloped RNA virus. And that envelope uh, is susceptible to you know, certain environmental conditions. Um, and so in the summer months, uh, when it's hotter or there's certain bands of humidity, sure, there will be, you know, and, and you know, people are outside, that's less favorable, it's less favorable. So, I have concerns, I continue to have concerns, and you've heard this expressed by our leaders, you know, that when the fall comes, and that rather than being outside, we're crowded more indoors, uh, and the conditions are, you know, cold, dry air, we know that those conditions are favorable for the transmission of enveloped respiratory viruses. Um, and so I'm quite concerned that if we don't uh, get our public health interventions in line ahead of that time, then there is great risk that instead of just regionally overwhelming our healthcare systems, that we're at greater risk of overwhelming our systems across the whole country. 
That's what those those are some of my concerns. The only maybe good part that. I hope that 80% of us, if we were infected, we would be immune for that short time. So at least we can pass that winter without a disaster. But, you know, time will tell. Time will tell. Look, this has been a fascinating discussion. I, I feel I could have done another two hours with you. So many questions to answer, and you are so knowledgeable. So first of all, thank you for doing all the hard work. I know you're working tirelessly uh, to find a solution and to understand where are we standing? I'll take a rain check to maybe come in a few months to understand better uh, from what you learn. It's a, a huge um, opportunity to get first experience knowledge about what's going on. Uh, I hope we will be in a better time a year from now uh, with the vaccination. And, uh, and again, thank you very much, uh, Captain Dan Charter, for sharing uh, your thoughts and your